0: You know, it's actually funny to me. I always feel just a little bit nervous uh, when doing a review like this, because I want to get it right, and there's actually quite a bit to talk about. <clears throat> but at the same time, there really isn't. It's it's one of those strange situations where I feel like I'm being redundant. Like, oh, I don't know if I was doing a video about Half-Life 2, for example. <laughs> or Dragon Age. What do you say about a game like that? Now, don't mistake this for high praise, uh, but this has just really been a stumbling block for me. So I've decided to approach this slightly differently. First of all, I want to re-emphasize that the rules still remain as they are. With one exception. Uh, No spoilers uh, after this point. You know, you can talk about Kingdom Hearts 1, Recom 2, and 358 itself, but nothing spoilering after this. Okay. For those of you who are not aware, that would include Birth by Sleep, Recoded, and Dream Drop Distance. Next point. The non-spoiler section of this rumination is probably going to be a bit smaller than just about anything I've done up to date. And you'll see why in just a moment, so, um... Well, let's start by talking about the engine, okay? 358 over 2 came out on the DS. Now, the DS doesn't quite have the same uh, hardware capacity that the PS2 does, or the PSP does, or the 3DS does, obviously, you know. So, one of the choices they had to make when making this game was how to best convey a game that is designed to be a, you know, relatively high-paced, three-dimensional action, Secret of Mana-style game on, on something like the DS. Now, they had to really bring down the polygons of the characters in order to make it work. But I think it did work, and in fact, as weird as it's going to sound, I kind of like it in many cases better than Kingdom Hearts 1, and indeed Kingdom Hearts 2 in some cases. But only for one very specific reason. Obviously, the graphics quality is not comparable even to Kingdom Hearts 1, but... But... One thing they did surprisingly well was, and I've, I've complained about this before, they have those textures on the faces, right? Now, when they have the actual moving faces in, in Kingdom Hearts 1 or 2 or whatever, it's great, it looks fantastic. But in in 358, they don't have those. They just have the texture. And it's, as weird as this is going to sound, I feel like more effort was put into making that texture look good in order to accommodate the fact that there would be no three-dimensional uh, morphic faces going on. And so I actually like the the 2D texture appearance of some, many of the characters, Roxas, Axel, etc., better than I do in the other games they've appeared in. Go figure, right? But overall, the engine works very well. The load times are short, the gameplay is incredibly smooth, the gameplay itself actually feels... uh a little bit stilted, and there's, I don't think there's really any avoiding that, but it never actually bothered me. It, I never reached a point where I actually had to be like, like I did in Kingdom Hearts 1, for example, and to a lesser extent, Recom. One of the other things that they tried to do, <coughs> excuse me, I've talked about this before, is they try to vary up the leveling system, the combat sort of thing, in each Kingdom Hearts game. I have a feeling, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I have this feeling that that's kind of a holdover from the Final Fantasy mentality. If you haven't watched those videos of mine or don't know what I'm talking about, every Final Fantasy they had a rule from about uh, 5 onwards that they had to do something different with the leveling system and with the, you know, the general gameplay uh, each game, which, in my opinion, became a crutch later on because they kept trying to do new stuff even after they just come up with something really nice. You know You know what I mean? So... <clears throat> that's something that i feel has has bled over on the kingdom hearts. i don't have any data on that. it just feels like that. now, that being said, 358 doesn't do it too badly. it's not like recom where i <laughs> couldn't stand the gameplay at all. the actual combat itself is pretty much copy paste your standard kingdom hearts thing, but one thing they did very differently is the leveling system. you get uh for lack of a better way to explain it, tetris blocks, okay? I really do not know how to describe this in words, but you have what is effectively a big old grid here, and you have so many spaces on this grid, and you could plop down these Tetris pieces, and that's your stats, that's your level. And as you level up, all that really happens is you get more spaces on the grid to fling puzzle pieces down, right? Now, I'm actually pretty good at that kind of spatial puzzle sort of thing. So I I was pretty, I I actually liked that. I really liked, uh, you know, min-maxing myself and putting this here and that here and figuring out the different combinations I could use. That kind of thing, you know, because there's also combination blocks. Like, for example, you have a single square here that's like this. And this is, you know it'll have uh, empty spaces to the right and down. And if you put anything in those spaces, it'll upgrade the level of the magic, for example. So you put that down, and then you put a fire over here, but then you put another fire and another fire, and so you've got it all the way up to the fire aga, or whatever. You see where I'm going with this? It's an interesting system, but I do have to, in the, in the interest of honesty and fairness, mention that I know several people who really didn't like it. Because again, you kinda have to have that spatial puzzle mentality in order to really get the most out of it, otherwise you're basically being penalized for the fact that you have to do a little puzzle in order to, to set up your stats and whatnot, you know? One other thing I do have to mention, this is the first time I've mentioned this, and will probably be the only time I mention this throughout the series. I want to give you guys a bit of advice if you haven't played this game, because we're still in the non-spoiler territory, so, you know, it's possible there's still some of you out there who haven't played this game. If you ever play 358, 358 over 2, focus on magic, not melee. I've talked before, uh, most especially in Kingdom Hearts 2, about how you could specialize heavily into magic and it could work. Not really so much in Kingdom Hearts 1, but in Kingdom Hearts 2 you really could do that. You could be a full on mage and then later on, you know, uh, mix the two with the master uh, suit and, you know, all that fun stuff. But in 358, I strongly recommend you focus on magic. Meleeing does so little damage and has so less effect and is so much more difficult to get hits. On many of the enemies, the I was actually I actually put the game down several times because I was getting so frustrated with the combat because it's my natural inclination in a game like that to be melee heavy, you know, secret of mana, again, right? But when I finally decided to start trying uh, fire, like I said specifically, I really and I I just did it for one mission, and I had just plain old fire, nothing else, you know, just and I just destroyed the mission. It was such a night and day difference for me. Uh, you know, pretty much using solely magic instead of melee, and melee only to, you know, finish people off or whatever, And when I ran out of spells, that I immediately switched my entire puzzle piece, you know, just completely wiped the board and changed it all over to full-on, you know, tons of fireaga, tons of kiraga, and just, and all of a sudden the game was fun again. <laughs> I don't know if that was just me... But it's one of those things that's so obvious that I cannot help but feel it was very deliberate, because I've never seen that in another Kingdom Hearts game. Now, granted, I haven't actually finished uh, Dream Drop Distance yet. But, you know, I, I just wanted to mention that because it was such a, a, a variance, such a difference between the regular series. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about here. Uh, ah, before I move on, because I'm basically done talking about the gameplay. You know, it, it's adequate, it's fun. Use magic. Um... How do I put this? I use I have a term called Guiden games. Now I'm I know the literal definition of Guiden, and I'm pretty sure that that is technically inaccurate, even though it could be inferred to be correct. I, I admittedly use a lot of phrases like that because my language and my uh, vocabulary is very strange. Yeah. But um, what I refer to as a Guiden game is when you have your main series here, and then you have a Guiden game over here, and this. May or may not have something to do with this the the plot arc of this series, assuming the series has a plot arc, but this game is is you know features a separate protagonist, features a separate uh, story arc, whatnot. And in my opinion, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> in my opinion, as a writer and as a as a story developer, whatever you want to call that, if you're going to do something like that. There are several ways to do it correctly. Three ways specifically. Number one is to make it something completely different and unrelated, that nevertheless services the setting, that fleshes out the setting and helps make you know, understand the world or the or the galaxy or whatever better. Right. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that one, but you know it's pretty obvious. The second one is to have it be something uh, alternate, to be as you know like like a view uh, a in comics they have these things called Elseworlds I don't remember if that's the DC or the Marvel term because they both use different terms but whatever where it's like here's what would you know this story has nothing to do with standard continuity and we change one thing or we change three things or whatever and here's the story that results is that you know Superman All-Stars for example was in fact an Elseworlds type story and one of the best Superman comics ever made in my opinion so that's just kind of the kind of thing I'm talking about right it's 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 an alternate idea. Like, uh, let's say we were let's let's use something you guys are probably familiar with, Final Fantasy, right? Let's say we were going to do a guiding game about Final Fantasy VII. Now, in so doing, let's say we want to set it in a setting where Sephiroth never actually got built. It was never made. Never came to be. Okay. Now you may say, "Well, that just defeats the whole purpose of the game." But think about that. Genuinely think about this for a moment. Think about what would happen if Genova was left to continue to show and and grow and manipulate without Sephiroth taking control of the proper process in the situation. Think about what would have happened with Avalanche and the main party members if they had never had the interactions in order to if if they'd never had a grander purpose because they were they were doomed to failure. We know that Tifa, Barrett. They were screwed. What would happen with Shinra? Would they continue? Would they ever fi- reach a point where they would finally turn around and realize what they were doing and try to stop it? But interestingly enough, what would happen to several of the main characters, like, say, oh, I don't know, Zack, or Cloud, if Sephiroth and that whole thing never existed? If there was no soldier? Or would there be a soldier? You get where I'm going with. It. I could keep going for forever, but my point is that's the second type of Guiding Game you do: the alternate, the the Elseworlds, right? The third type of Guiding Game is a game where it strictly, and I shouldn't say strictly, it, it strongly, it it very much emphasizes, adds to, builds upon, and it, it develops the main storyline. Crisis Core. Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core is a beautiful example of what I'm talking about. It fleshes out the characters, it fleshes out the setting, it adds to the story. And here's the important part: oftentimes, the third type of guiding game, when done properly, will be done either during or before an existing game, right? But when done properly, it adds to the games that came after it, chronologically speaking. It adds to them. It Makes it so that you understand more fully what's going on, and you can appreciate it more three fifty eight over two is a flawless example of this third type. It is a perfectly beautiful guiding game that completely fleshes out the Kingdom Hearts setting, the characters within it, and the main storyline itself. One of the reasons I have such a hard time discussing the story of this game, you know when I was when I was building this rumination, putting my notes together and all that stuff, is because. It basically, its story of itself is so irrelevant if taken in a vacuum, if you understand what I mean. 358 is destroyed. It literally builds upon Kingdom Hearts 1, Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, Kingdom Hearts 2, Birth by Sleep, and Dream Drop Distance, which wasn't even out at this point in time. 358 over 2 is literally the connecting point for the entire series. And so much was added in this game that we are still expounding about, that we still don't fully understand. And is still unresolved in the series' course at this point in time. If I haven't made it obvious by now, I do strongly recommend you at the very least watch 358. Uh, I know it's going to be in uh, Kingdom Hearts... Is it 1? 1.5, I think, has the the cutscenes for 358. Yeah, it does, because then uh, 2.5 is going to have the cutscenes from Recoded. And then it's going to have two and Birth By Sleep playable. So I strongly recommend you play this game. And I even more strongly recommend you watch this game at the very least. And that's all I can really talk about this game without really getting into spoilers. With one exception. I'm not there yet, so you know don't have to, don't have to close your video yet. One of the things that each Kingdom Hearts game has done has had a... I hesitate to use the word theme, because it's more like a stylistic choice in its approach towards the setting. Kingdom Hearts 1's was darkness. Kingdom Hearts Recalm was memory. Kingdom Hearts 2's was nothingness. 358 is the individual. No game in... Uh, <laughs> each game in the Kingdom Hearts series has had a strong character focus. Another leftover from the Final Fantasy series, back when I was good. <laughs> but... 358 takes that and just cranks it up. 358 is all about the people. Every individual you meet and talk with and interact with you learn more about them and you learn more about the person they're interacting with. And those interactions help help you to understand the people involved in this series much more. Nowhere is this more... The moment you turn on this game, you understand exactly what you're getting into, because the moment you turn on this game, you see, you know, the intro video, and it's just going down the list of the organization members. It is so obvious from that intro, as the music plays, that this is exactly what this game is going to be about. These individuals. These people. If you could call some of these people. People. (laughs) People. There is one other thing. Uh, I don't don't want to talk about this too much now. There's there's a section I'm leaving leaving for the end of the video. But there's one other thing that uh, you could mention that is sort of a theme of 358, and that is perception. This is something that was touched on in Kingdom Hearts 2. I'm pretty sure I mentioned that, especially with regards to the Timeless River. The perception of the individual not the player, not us, but the individual, the characters in question, is morphic, it's not static. They don't just see light and it enters their brains and they interpret it, but there's a there's literal, uh, magical, or mystical, or whatever you call it, perception uh, going on. They see things literally differently. 358 touches on that rather significantly, and not just with the obvious character, the Shion. Now... This is now your warning. Spoilers! I I thought about getting like a billboard or something and just writing spoilers, and that way I could just hold it up to the video, and then you'd know this is now the point, because of the sign, literally, that I am now going into spoiler territory. Spoilers! And then I'd put it down, you know. Let's go ahead and start talking about the members of the organization. now. When I was originally going to do this, I was just going to go down the list, but then I realized that anybody watching this would probably lynch me if I talked about Axel so late in the list. <laughs> so, rather than doing that, we're going to go ahead... I'm pulling up a list just to make sure I don't forget anybody. Lord knows I've done that before with other games. I don't want to do that again. Whoops. No! There we go. That'll do. So, let's go ahead and talk about Axel and Roxas right off the bat. Let's start Let's start strong, Okay. Roxas is interesting because Roxas was created in the middle of Kingdom Hearts 1 during the Hollow Bastion incident. For those of you not fully familiar with the situation, what happened was Sora willingly, and this is important, willingly uh, loosed his heart from himself, creating Roxas and uh, allowing his heart to be consumed by darkness. Now here's the part where things get weird. There's two interesting things that happen right off the bat. We'll cover the, the obvious one first. The obvious thing is that very shortly thereafter, within a matter of minutes at best, heartless, the sora of heart the heart sora of heartless. Ugh, too many s's sora's heartless then goes down and interacts with kyrie and kyrie acts as for lack of a better word a bridge between his heart and his memory his his mentality his existence and so sora is recreated from kyrie's heart and his own heart which is which is what the heartless basically is heart, you know the heart manifested right but normally when that happens, the, the nobody, I should say normally, this, we didn't actually know this yet, but but what happens is that the, the Heartless and the nobody should recombine and create the original being again. But that's not actually what happened because he wasn't actually recombined. He was rebuilt based off of the pieces of him that were in Kyrie. I, I know it gets a little convoluted, but this is, I'd say this is the beginning of the pieces of Sora and his connection to everyone, but actually that's not true, but we're not going to talk about Birth by Sleep right now. Point being, within the with, you know production order of the series, this is the first time that really happened, and so as a result, Sora is now interest, intrinsically tied to Kyrie and vice versa, but also Roxas, who kept existing despite his unusual creation the fact that he actually shouldn't. I'm not even talking about the normal way that nobody shouldn't exist. I'm talking about the fact that his original being was still walking around while he was. Now, it has been argued that Roxas is a special case with regards to how he is. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but I just want to mention that I personally don't think that's true. It's just my opinion. I don't have anything to back it up. But within the Imperium, for example, that's how it is, and I'll I'll talk about that more in a minute. Let's get to the other event. Second thing that happens is Roxas is there in Twilight Town, and almost immediately, Sumnus is there. Now, this is fascinating for many reasons. We know, based on the other games in the series, and indeed this one especially, really highlights the the fact that the Dark Corridor and the usage thereof is not, you know, in two you could be. Uh, and Kingdom Hearts 2, you could be forgiven for thinking that they could use it pretty much as a cover-all plot point, you know, to smear some quantum over it or whatever, because they always seem to be there at the right place and the right time. But we've seen throughout the rest of the series, and if you think about it in 2, that's not the case. What is actually happening is they're just using it intelligently, carefully, calculatingly, making sure that they can... It's its, its tool, and they use it very carefully and very properly. Why do I bring this up? Because Xemnas knew... Roxas was there almost immediately, and there's only a couple of ways that could have happened. In my opinion, it is most likely that Zemnus was paying very careful attention to Sora, given his eventual plans with regards to, you know, building the Artificial Kingdom Hearts. And when he saw the incident happen with Sora, it is very likely that he immediately went to Twilight Town, where most of the nobodies appear, and hunt and looked for Roxas. Or, who would, who would soon become Roxas, because Zemnus actually gave him his name as he gave so many of the others the names. Not all of them, by the way. We know for a fact that Zigbar, for example, named Merluxia. But anyways, moving on. So, I find that interesting because it shows the kind of... Per- we don't really know a lot about Xemnas from him being on screen so much as we know from his actions and what he's done. And it shows the calculating mind underneath there. The scientist, if you will, and it shows the individual who very much is driven for his goals and is not wi- is willing to do basically whatever's necessary. And it shows how much of an interest he had at that point in time within the Keyblade bearer. For many reasons, <laughs> both his own and well, we don't want to talk about that. Now, all I've talked about is Roxas's creation, but I wanted to mention the other thing. Okay, so I, I said I'd get to it. Roxas took a while to become functional, is the word I want to use. He wasn't brain-dead. He wasn't incapable of function. He could walk, he could speak, he could understand language, but he was effectively a zombie in many ways. Uh, Not literally, but, I mean, you know, like in just the, the way he was presenting himself, the way he was behaving. He, to put it bluntly, was broken. Now... There's a there's a decent amount of evidence that this is unique to Roxas, due to his unique creation, due to the fact that Sora was then reconstituted with Kyrie's pieces. But I personally would like to believe and put forth the theory that that is how all nobodies are at the beginning of their conception, for lack of a better term. That all nobodies are disoriented, confused, have no particular understanding of what or why or how, and, and... <laughs> are vulnerable. And I mention that part especially because it makes sense to me that one of the reasons that the organization bonded in this way and is so dedicated towards the ideal of, you know, building the New Kingdom Hearts and whatnot, and is willing to work for Xemnas under his frankly tyrannical and dictatorial rule, is because, you know, that when you're in that kind of a vulnerable state you're going to be a lot more likely to listen to or deal with, or whatever, the people who have come along. And, and indeed, we see this happen in 358, because that's why Roxas works for the organization willingly. At no point did it probably even occur to him until, you know, it, it took him a while. It took him until, like, day 300 or something like that. It was quite a ways for Roxas to finally have had enough of this, because it was so ingrained in him to work with these people and just do this job and just live with it because that was the life he knew, because that was the life that was there for him when he was in his developing stages. You follow where I'm going with this? So it is my opinion and belief that all nobodies go through that intro period, and that'll be more important later, but I just thought I'd mention it here, because it is a fascinating insight into the life of a nobody. I mentioned that, you know, the nobodies got quite a bit of focus back in Kingdom Hearts 2, but this really hits the nail on the head as to what, kind of life, if you could call it that, that the nobodies lead. You know, you first come into existence and you're you're just, you're just detached. You're unhinged. You have no idea what's what or what's where. And it's and it probably manifests differently with each individual. And I'd just like to add here, I, I, I don't have a better place to put this because I know I'm still talking about Roxas, but I find it to be a horrific irony that the members of the organization are all effectively you know, outcasts, wretched individuals who probably have the closest thing to bonds of of friendship or fellowship, to to having allies and comrades amongst each other, and yet ultimately care so little about each other for their own particular reasons. It's ironic in its own way, because nobody else really cares about them, and many people actively do not, you know? (laughs) Screwed up. Anyways, I'll talk about that more later when I get to my finale. Roxas, in Roxas, we see everything Sora should have been, in my opinion. Now, even as I say that, I I hear myself arguing against my own statement, because as I've talked about before, Sora, and this will become this will become most apparent by Dream Drop Distance, but Sora has always been the. <sighs> As I said, he's neither light nor dark. He is the—he an in-between. But Sora's attitude has always been very... I hate myself for saying this. Very Tidus. And as I said, Tidus was necessary for FF10's existence, even though I didn't like it personally. So too is Sora for the Kingdom Hearts first. He needs to be that childlike... not Not childish, there's a difference, but that childlike mentality. And that, you know... Bouncy for lack of a better word personality for the story to progress in the way it is for the, for things to work the way it does now, but that being said, Roxas is the protagonist I wish we had had personally, and he is driven, he is a lot more human, he has flaws he has, and i don't I don't mean crippling stupidity which is which is Sora's flaws, I mean he has you know emotional flaws and, and character flaws he Feels a lot more like a human being than Sora does, and uh, that's probably because if I were to put a label on, I would say Roxas feels a lot more adult than Sora does. I can't really talk about why, <laughs> but there are several reasons that are likely as to why that is. Let's just let's just leave that alone. <laughs> But one of the things that most interests me about Roxas is the fact that he has no trouble putting two and two together. Even when he was still in his zombie mode, he showed a surprising amount of intellect, uh, or logical deduction, I guess is a better way to put that. And this was really true in Kingdom Hearts 2 as well. Uh, we saw that even in the intro, Roxas was able to figure out what was going on with with relative ease, whereas Sora didn't figure it out for the entirety of the game. <laughs> and to have it explained to him. And... This is shown as well in 358. We see Roxas's intellect, we see Roxas's growth, we, we see Roxas's personality, but it's also worth noting, and this is interesting to me, that it is probable he would not have had that sharp mind if he had not had it honed by the organization members. This is a wonderful irony in its own right, because... One of the things the organization does is these missions in order to accommodate things. They have a very mission-based structure, which is something I actually meant to talk about earlier. But it, it, it very much has to do with the uh, the approach to the game, which I'll talk about in just a moment here. About how, you know, this is their day-to-day jobs. And they had to, for lack of a better word, train Roxas so he would actually be useful in those day-to-day jobs. And as a result, I feel like Roxas's overall competence... You know, mentally, emotionally, physically, were all heightened by the organization, which again is the ironic part. <laughs> but we'll get into that later. So, I also want to say that I really feel for Roxas. Because, and this is immediately relevant to the last two things I just said, Roxas is someone who probably just wants to live. And there's no probably. He just wants to live his life. He just wants to live his simple life. He is not ambitious. He is not a long-term planner. He has no grandiose goals or schemes. He just wants to exist his simple little existence and enjoy it with his friends. Obviously, this possibility is taken from him, literally the moment he he comes into being, actually. But I mention this here specifically because... If... I feel that Roxas is an excellent example of someone who, due to circumstance, due to manipulation, and due to training, due to to the way things happened, was artificially changed into the adult persona I just mentioned. That he had to grow up quickly and harshly, and he didn't want to. He says this over and over throughout the game, how much he just wants to go back to doing the missions and sitting on the clock tower with Shion and Axel. And that's all he really wants. He just wants all this complexity, all this crap to go away, and when it finally bursts, his rage is all-consuming. His towering fury at the situation, at everything going on, is so overwhelming that it's all he can do to just barely restrain himself. And he and they actually can't restrain himself in the end, and finally just goes straight to back to the castle in order to take down Xemnas. And I find myself wondering if part of that was also being done out of guilt. When Roxas was going back towards the end, when he encounters Riku if maybe the reason that Roxas was doing on what it was so obviously a suicidal plan, to attack the Organization's stronghold with no, with no backing, with no nothing, was because he himself felt like, after all he had done, not just for all the worlds he'd con- and con- contacted and interacted with and made worse, and he knew that now, but for all he'd done to Xion, and all he'd done to Axel, he felt like he didn't deserve to exist anymore. And the only way he could atone for that is to trying to do some one last good act with his existence. And if he failed, to cease. If I haven't made this clear, 358 is arguably the most downer and uh, tragic of the series. Some would argue Birth by Sleep is, but I no, I, I put my money on 358. Whew. Let's talk about Axel. We see a fairly large amount of Axel's character development here in 358. We saw the accelerated version back in Recom. We saw him as he started... Well, actually, no, we didn't. We saw him as he started there, and then we saw him as he grew throughout the events of that. But here in 358, we get to truly, for the first time, see Axel before the events of Recom. And it's such a stark contrast to see the cold fish the the, the manipulator, the deceiver, the individual who is just brutal and to the point, and to see him slowly grow on Roxas and slowly kind of become more of the Axel we will know. It is debatable exactly why this happens. Either it's because of the thing we don't know yet that is revealed in Dream Drop Distance, or because of his proximity to Roxas, which is actually mentioned in uh, Kingdom Hearts 2 as well. But either way, Axel goes from being what I would refer to as a typical nobody, you know, Saïc style, and then growing into someone who is actually a person. I've said before, Axel is one of the most important characters in the series, and I stand by that statement. He is arguably the single strongest and most well-developed uh, secondary character, non-main character, of, of the entire series and franchise. And it's worth noting that he has been in every single game except one. You know, Kingdom Hearts 1, I mean. He has been in all of them. Yes, that's right, he was in by Sleep. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I just felt like mentioning that. Now, that being said, one of the other interesting things about Axel is he also clearly went into this ambition, uh, with ambition, you know, uh, finally saying something that could be considered a spoiler. Lee was his original name, okay? which is kind of funny a lot of us were theory crafting as to what Syax and Axel's original names were cuz both of their names are so ill suited to to you know you move the x and you have three letters left what do you do with that isa is the na- is Syek's name by the way but lee and isa were both very good friends when they were younger best friends one might say and based on what we hear it is very obvious that both of both of them deliberately lost their hearts and became the nobodies in order to infiltrate the organization and take it over we don't know a lot of details about the hows and the whys and what was going through their heads when they actually did that what we do know is that the moment they joined things got a little weird axel was still by the time of recoms beginning which is you know several days into 358 the plan was still in full effect Axel assassinated a fairly large amount of, of organization members within uh, Castle Oblivion. Obviously, he, he did so under orders, and he did so to, to, to accommodate like three or four different ends, but one of those ends was to uh, make it so that Syx would basically take over the job of administrator. He would, beca- he would effectively become the number two of the organization. But by the end of Recom, at which point Axel's heart, for lack of a better term, has started to emerge and he started to show his personality again, you can tell his heart just isn't in this anymore, and it makes me wonder exactly what happened to convince him and Isa to do this in the first place, and why they had this whole goal. If I were actually asked to put money on it, I would probably say that that actually wasn't the goal to begin with. It is far more likely that those two kids were experimenting and ended up either deliberately or semi-deliberately becoming the nobodies, and as soon as the organization was made aware to them, because by this point Xemnas already existed, their next step, for lack of a better term, was to try and infiltrate it and... Or not... I I shouldn't say try to infiltrate it, because they were were recruited into it, but try to uh, advance their own position within it. Now... (laughs) I, I could theorycraft about this all day long, so forgive me, but let's just move on for the moment. One of the other th- interesting things about Axel is we see in him someone who has the heart-wrenching experience of losing a friend twice throughout this game, throughout 358. Is His little log where he talks about Isa, uh, or rather, Saix, is so appropriate as it mentions that I'm not the one that changed, you are. Even though it's actually rather likely that both of them did, as a result of these experiences, as one is wont to when one's heart is ripped out, um, kalima Sorry. That being said, Axel lost his friend Isa. It was. It's pretty obvious based on the way Sykes doesn't change throughout the course of the game. He really doesn't. He he stays the same relative character throughout the whole game, and that's actually a good thing, and I'll talk about that when I get to him, but, um, that Axel basically lost his friend Issa the moment he became Saix. Similarly, he g- finds a new friend in Roxas, grows close to him, grows to like him for whatever reason, and then he starts to get alright with Shion. I'll never forget the scene, I talked about Perception earlier, where, um... Shion, you know, asks if Roxas and Axel, Roxas and Axel, I'm going to say a lot of X words today, are uh, friends, you know. And he says, yes. And Shion asks, are we friends too? And she asks it in that way where you can tell she doesn't actually 100% know what the words mean, but she's asking if there is still that connection there. And Axel's response is, well, yeah, sure, because he, he doesn't quite get the significance. And then when he looks at Shion again, he actually sees her face for the first time. He actually sees a person there instead of the instead of the doll, the puppet. We'll talk about that more later. But I mention this because, from that point on, the three's friendship grew, and the three of them really started to 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 care about each other. And Axel, <laughs> poor Axel. Not only does he lose Shion because he knows what's going on, because Axel is, is is actually very smart. I'd say he is the second smartest member of the organization, second only to Zigbar. We'll get to him later, but he knows. So he knows what's going on with Shion and the plans and the manipulations involved there. But he also knows what's going on with Roxas. And he knows that the organization has already decided that only one of them can continue to exist... Because they only need one of them, and so they're going to try to force the issue. So he's literally forced into a situation where he is guaranteed to lose one of his friends. Now some of you ask, well, why doesn't he just go against the organization? Well, several reasons I think are pertinent here. Obviously he does when when Kingdom Hearts 2 comes around. He finally goes ahead and goes rogue and acts against the organization but it is worth noting he does not do so until the organization's strength is much less is much reduced with many of its heavy hitters gone and the only big big names remaining being zigbar and saix and zemnus himself of course further it is also worth noting that zemnus threatens axel with the one thing that he would hate most and of course he does zemnus i i didn't mention zemnus as the smartest member because <sighs> Zimnes, I don't want to talk about him too much right now, but he has a certain type of intellect which is probably better described as cunning, and as weird as this is going to sound, wisdom. He knew exactly what to say to get Axel to cow, because he had the he has the power, and this is demonstrated more than once, that he can turn a sentient, living, you know, functional nobody, what I call an unknown, into a normal, plain old nobody like a dusk, and he threatens Axel with that. The one thing that would he knew would make Axel do that, because there is nothing that Axel would fear more, having grown so much as an individual up to that point. If he threatened Syks with that, it is debatable if it would if it would have had any effect at all. But threaten Axel, the person who has grown, who has developed his own heart, who has developed his own feelings, feelings, emotions, etc., far more likely to have an impact, and indeed it did. On top of that, there's also something that a lot of people tend to forget. In fiction, if someone does not immediately stand up against tyranny, most often this is done to demonstrate that they are a coward. The problem with that is most people tend to forget that in real life, that kind of thing's hard to do. And when I'm talking about tyranny, I'm not even talking about cartoony examples. You know I'm not talking about extremes or or radicals where it's so obvious that A, B or C is evil. It's just walking up to your boss and saying, "I think you're doing this wrong takes a degree of courage and guts in order to do, especially because you know how badly things could go for you if you know they don't take well to your message. I mention this because I think this is also very strongly tied into Axel's character growth. Forgive me for kind of quoting Bleach here, of all things, but I feel like Axel's character would not have developed nearly as much if he had not lived in fear as much as he did. If he did not have to have that constant fear of reprisal from the organization, of the loss of his friends, of the individuals who aren't... He he was in the serpent's nest, and he knew it. That's the important part. He knew he was surrounded by enemies. And he knew that there was basically nothing he could do to stop them. You know, I, I, hate, I hate to say it so bluntly, but if Axel decided to actually fight Zemnus, Xemnas would win. There's really no question on that. So I think that that is why Axel didn't take action for so long. Because he was afraid. Because he was a very real person who understood the consequences of such action. Because he did not want to lose the individual that he had become. It is also very much implied, and I know I'm skipping into Xemnas territory again here, that Zemnus's power over the nobodies is close to absolute. Now what I mean by that is obviously he can't just mind control everyone. He's not, you know, the Lich King with his total absolute control over every member of the Scourge simultaneously. But what I mean by that is that he can turn any nobody back into a dusk, right? And he can do it pretty much at will. He threatened to do it on the spot to Axel. And he, and this is mentioned elsewise, too. Why is that relevant? Because that means, by guarantee, that anyone aware of that could not go and fight Xemnas directly. The only one who was unaware of that fact was Roxas, as I mentioned earlier, who was going to go fight him directly. I think that most powerfully, the reason why Shion asked Riku to stop Roxas was because she knew he was literally guaranteed to fail because of that fact. Because Roxas was still a nobody. And Xemnas could have just... That would have been the end of the fight. No grand finale. No last gasp of defiance. And Shion knew that. And that's why she never did anything against him. And that's why she helped this whole situation come to be. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I know, but I just want to talk about this because this is, all of this is also relevant to Axel. Axel's so, and Roxas' stories are so intertwined. I could have just talked about the two side by side, really. But there's one last thing I want to talk about with our good Axel before I move on. There's a scene where he has this beautiful line when he's talking to uh, Shion. And she's trying to run, and she says, "Don't come after me." I'm trying, you know. And Axel is so pissed off. I forget his exact line, forgive me, but he basically says, you all just keep running away, and no matter how many times you run, I'll be there to bring you back. Anybody who's played Dream Drop Distance probably recognizes that line. Not going into it, I just wanted to mention it. But it's important here because the tonality with which uh, the voice actor says it is so apparent what he's thinking, what he's feeling at that moment. He is so angry at the fact that he has to go after his friends because he is powerless to do anything else about it, because he knows if he doesn't someone else will go and they will be worse. He is so infuriated at this situation, at the the organization for putting him into this position, at his friends for putting him into this position, at Syax for abandoning him, at himself for getting himself into the situation to begin with. There is just rage burning in his heart. It is so appropriate, I say, for Axel to be fire. Because despite all his manipulations and his cunning and his ca- casual, easygoing attitude when he's actually allowed to be himself, Axel's character is grounded in anger. And it defines so much of his character arc. And indeed, it is not until Kingdom Hearts 2 when that anger finally overcomes his cowardice, because that is why he finally acts against the organization. It takes until his rage has built to that point at all, everything that's been happening, everything that Sykes has been doing, everything that happened to Roxas. All his desire to see Roxas. All that stuff is all because he was so angry at everyone. And most especially himself. Let's talk about Saix. Saix is one of my favorite organization members. I'd say probably my third favorite overall. I'm not counting Roxas in that. Although even then, Roxas is probably fourth, to be completely honest with you. And Shion would be... Whatever. <laughs> of the base 13... Sykes is awesome. By the way, my favorite Zigbar. Um Syx is a perfect example of someone who took to his I'm gonna use the word indoctrination because I think it is so appropriate in the circumstances. I can't talk about it in more detail yet. That's all I'm gonna say about that, but... Based on the way that they treat new organization members, it is so apparent that their own developments were shaped by not only that indoctrination, but how they then interacted one with another. But none of them took to it more than Psyx did. And this is also apparent in Dream Drop Distance. Again, I don't want to talk about it. God! (laughs) This series connects with itself so well, it's almost frustrating trying to avoid spoilers. (sighs) Saiex is what you would call your typical nobody. In fact, he is pretty much the definition of it. Your typical unknown, rather. He is exactly what uh, you know. Yensid and um, Ansem, the real Ansem, Ansem the Wise, have all said nobody's are. Doesn't feel, doesn't think, doesn't you know, etc., etc., etc. I'm sorry. Doesn't feel, does think. Is basically just memory and thought guiding without any emotion, right? Without a heart. And he insisted over and over that he has no heart. And I find that incredibly telling, given everything we know, both then and now, about the organization members and about the way the heart and, and the nobodies work. Because when you emphasize something like that over and over in your mind and in your in your being, and your very existence is so morphic as to be shaped by your mentality, what do you think is going to happen? And so Sykes emphasizes over over and over again that he is a nobody, that he has no heart, that he has no feelings, that he has no emotion. And so he comes across as what a what I think a proper Vulcan would be. Forgive me for the Star Trek thing. But someone who is guided purely by their thought and their logic, tempered with a degree of reasoning and morality, you know, not not quite to the level of, say, the Borg, which is the next step. But he <laughs> is all about the goals and the actions needed to make them happen. You know, let's get in charge, let's move to this point. Somewhere along the line, it becomes very obvious that Saix basically just kind of gave up on his goal of taking over. I have a theory as why, well, and I can't talk about it without spoiling future games. But anybody who has played Dream Drop Distance can probably guess at what that theory is and why Saix gave up his uh, ambitions. So, guess! Go! Um, that being said... One of the things I find most interesting about Saix is, he is probably one of the most, and I hate myself for using this word, pathetic members of the organization. Pitiable, actually, probably would be better. He is someone to be pitied. He is someone who is truly the victim in this case. More so than so many else. and I say that because... I hate to keep talking about Star Trek. Star Trek Deep Space Nine really talked about how screwed up the occupation was often. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just bear with me, okay? But what was really tragic about that, at least to me personally, was that on the one side you have the victims of the Bajorans. On the other side you have the tyranny and the the leaders and the horrible, horrible people of the the, uh, Cardassian Union. But the, really, the part that really bothers me is the people in the middle, who are the ordinary Cardassians doing their job. When you have a horrific organization like the Cardassian Union committing atrocities like they were doing against the Bajorans, what you see in the middle are people who basically end up being one of three things. They try to help those people as best as they can, fail, and, and suffer for the consequences... You have people who are turned into tyrants and dictators and evil men because they grow to accept and tolerate the horrible acts they have to accomplish. Or you have people like our individual in in Duet, I can't remember his real name, the guy who was posing as the goal. People who are driven mad by the horrible acts that they have to assist. People who have to bury their heads in pillows because they can't withstand the screams anymore. And they are just as powerless to do anything about it as their victims are. That is wrong. And Syx, of all people, is that type of person, in my opinion. He is someone who is just as much of a victim as his victims are. He is just as much ...manipulated and wounded... tore down. And whoever Issa once was... ...is probably gone forever. Even what, what we know since then. Because Psyx ...was changed... ...ruined... ...and destroyed... By, ...by having to be this implement. And I guarantee you Xemnas never saw him as anything more than a tool... Just like the Cardassian Union never saw people like our friend and duet as anything more than a tool. So I have a great deal of empathy for Saix, as weird as that sounds. And a great deal of pity for him. And I've said before that whenever I play Kingdom Hearts, you'll see this when I do my Kingdom Hearts 2 stream, I can't help but apologize to the nobodies as I extinguish their existence. Nowhere do I ever feel that more than Saix. As he dies, leaning up against a wall, unable to comprehend, and desperately begging, Where is my heart? I'll talk about that moment more when I do the stream, but suffice it to say that from what we learn in Dream Drop Distance, that moment's even more poignant than we already thought. Let's move on. To Zigbar. I keep saying Zigbar is my favorite nobody, my favorite organization member. And so is Bragg, since I consider the two one and the same at this point. And the truth of the matter is part of it is because he does something that I consider truly intelligent people to do. I think I mentioned this before back in Kingdom Hearts too. Zigbar and Bragg both portray themselves as less intelligent than they are. Someone who is truly intelligent will never admit or show how intelligent they are, in my opinion, because they know how dangerous that can be, and they can use that to their advantage. They will always portray at least a degree of incompetence. And it's, it's funny because it takes a truly intelligent perp- person to know the, the balance between competence and incompetence that you have to portray in order to display yourself as useful enough to be kept around, but not dangerous enough to be watched. As such, Zigbar hits that balance perfectly, and always has, and makes it to such a situation where he is always on the inside track of everything that's going on. I would give so much to be able to just pull Zigbar aside, you know, out a, a character or whatever. Or if I were to jump into the universe and just pull him aside and ask him about everything. Because I, I guarantee you, Zigbar knows more about everything that's been happening than any other character in the entire series. I, I I'm not kidding when I say that. And I'm I'm not discounting Yensud, Ansem the Wise, You Know Who. No no no. Zigbar knows more about everything that's going on and he demonstrates this throughout this game as well. He is so on top of things. He's also someone who hints strongly at uh Birth by Sleep with it throughout this game. I don't really have much to add to that. I just felt like pointing it out. Because uh yeah but zigbar is without question the single most competent member of the organization and i use that word specifically because competence is that unusual blend of skill and intellect applied that's the important part there's a difference between being smart and being smart and knowing how to use it and and then of course and then using it frequently every time zigbar's out on a mission What he does and how he does it is so, from an outside perspective, from a third-person perspective, what we the players have, it's so obvious that he is planning, that he is manipulating, that he is conniving, that he is changing the circumstances to whatever it is he sees as benefit. And we don't even know what his plans are even now. I don't mind spoiling that. That's not even a spoiler, because there is no spoiler there. Even to this day, we don't actually know what Sigmar's real plans are, and I'm very much looking forward to finding it out. But he, even in the individual missions you do with him, the way he will just dance circles around Roxas with his verbal uh, wordplay, and every now and again, and he just portrays this this casual surfer dude attitude. They picked the perfect voice actor for him in the English. I I don't know what he sounds like in other languages. Forgive me, but in English they picked this casual surfer dude accent guy. Yeah, what's going on, man? As if you know which, again, perfectly accents the character, because you're not going to take that kind of person seriously, are you? <laughs> of course you're not. If I were to compare him to a character from anime, I would compare him to Jin from Bleach. And I'm not going to say anything more about that, but any of you out there who get what I'm talking about probably would agree with me. Or at least I would hope you would agree with me. Feel free to contradict me on this matter. Furthermore, Zigbar, though, let's, all I've been doing is talking about his presentation. One other thing I find absolutely fascinating about Zigbar is he never at any moment stops thinking about and, put, and putting things together. Forgive me for not giving individual examples, but even when you see him in the middle, in, in the recreation room, just kind of chilling, he is still talking about, well, this and that and that. Who is it of the organization, mem- organization members that immediately puts together the fact that Shion and Roxas feel for each other? Who is it of the organization members that understands that Axel is now going to cleave to Roxas more than Siax? Who is it of the organization members that knows exactly why things went down the way they went down back in Oblivion Castle? You see where I'm going with this? He's omnipresent, but he even in an out-of-character perspective, they portray Zigbar so well that unless you think about it, he's just part of the background. He's just another enemy. And I love that. And that's what I love about the character. He is an intelligent villain. I've talked about this concept before. An intelligent villain wins. That's why, as a writer, you have to make flaws in villains, because otherwise, they win. I would like to believe that Zigbar is not actually a villain, that he is simply a severe pragmatist. But that's just me being an idealist. It is far more likely that Zigbar has a long game going on, and we'll see what it is in the future, hopefully. It is also possible they will completely drop the ball on this, because, you know, Square Enix has been just circling the drain for so long at this point, I'm not even sure they exist anymore. Square Enix's nobody is circling the drain now, they're heartless. uh... Anyways. God, that would be an interesting thing, wouldn't it? Let's move on, let's move on. Unfortunately, I don't have much else to add to Zigbar, except for the fact that one of the things I love most about him is that he... This is going to sound so weird... But when I mentioned earlier about the lack of empathy between organization members, other than the obvious examples of the trio, Zigbar's probably the one real exception to that. Even Demix talks so casually and so disinterestedly about how his comrades were murdered. Were It's worse than murder. They were cessated, as I like to put it. They ceased to exist. Zigbar is the only organization organization member that shows any level of empathy or sympathy other than the trio. Think about that for a moment, and think about what that might mean. Let's move on. So, uh, let's let's okay. Now I'm going to pull up the list because I've gone over my biggies. <sighs> I guess I could talk about. I, I'm sorry. I need a drink. <laughs> my throat's still not. I actually have a lesion right now, and so I'm kind of I, I swashed swished with the the uh, Novocaine just before this. But I was tired of putting off this video. I really wanted to get it out there. I have no idea how long this is going to be either. I anticipated this is going to be my second shortest of the videos. I guess we'll find out. Let's talk about Xemnas. Zemnus, unfortunately, I can't talk about anything I want to, because it either has to do with Birth by Sleep or Dream Drop Chistons. <laughs> But I am going to talk about two things with regards to Zemnas. As I said, he has that wisdom thing going on. He knows uh, how to... He is not sharply intelligent so much as he knows how to apply what he does know. And he does it like that. In every instance, he does it like that. He, He is so on top of things, it's almost scary. And he knows how to portray either absolute competence or the appearance of absolute competence, which both are very important for someone in his position. And as I said, he knows the value of its everything, basically. He understood just how valuable Roxas was the moment he came into existence. And jumped on that with all of his effort. Literally, personally, I might add. I mention that because, from what we understand, any organization member can recruit another one. Again, to use the direct example, Zigbar recruited Merluxia. And uh, they talk about a few others. I can't remember specifics right now, forgive me. But Zemnis himself went to Roxas, and this is also especially important because Zemnis did so at a point in which there were already the other 12 members, counting himself. He cared so much about that situation, about what Roxas represented. Not Roxas personally, but the power of having a Keyblade wielder under his yoke was so important to him that he was on it like that. That's, th- that's what I mean when I say he has wisdom, not necessarily intellect. He understands that value. He does this again when it comes to uh, dis- intentionally dispatching Axel to Castle Oblivion, no doubt knowing his situation and what he was after, at least to some extent or another, and probably just not caring, because Xemnas knew he would turn out on top for it. Because Xemnas knew, again, as we've proven, that Marlugia and uh, Larxine were plotting against him. And if you doubt that, know that one of the things he pushed most strongly for was that the moment that uh, Vexen got settled, he wanted Vexen to produce Shion. It's one of the top priorities. Get you know, do the do the do the prototype. Get the prototype done. That's replico. I mentioned him back in Recom, and then make Shion now. Why? Because Xemnas knew Vexen was going to be cessated. You get where I'm going with this. He portrays a startling level of that competence I just mentioned, and it's no wonder that he be- he is one of uh, many people's favorite villains from the series, myself included, because, ignoring the fact that he's been in three of the games, well, technically four of the games at this point... Wait, one, two... He was briefly in one. He was mentioned in Recon, that doesn't count, so then two, 358... Yeah, okay. Um... Ignoring the fact that he is one of the most commonly portrayed villains, uh, probably second only to Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, he he presents such a deadlier enemy than the Seeker of Darkness did. Seeker of Darkness was always such a grandiose, over-the-top, if you forgive me for putting this, classic fantasy villain. You know, I, I mentioned Golbez was was kind of the archetype of that. You know, the I'm-bigger-than-life kind of a villain who is going to make lots of mistakes because they're arrogant and because they can just walk in with power. It's a very Voldemort-type villain, if you prefer a literary example like that. But Xemnas is not that. Xemnas, despite all his power, is very brutal, very cunning, very to-the-point, knows what he's doing, etc., etc., it's one of his lasting things. Now, again, I can't talk about the other two things. I want so much to just fling that rule out the window and say, screw it, okay, let's talk about Xemnas. I'm going to save that for Dream Drop Distance, I think. Because I got a lot to say about Ansem over there, too. Zolden. As I mentioned before, this game is incredibly character-based, and even the characters that don't really have a lot of characterization to them, and I'll get more into that later when I start going through, like, uh, for example, Lake Gius and whatnot... Zaldin is one of those characters but nevertheless they do manage to explore who and what he is now. And one of the things they do in doing so is emphasize that who you were doesn't actually mean anything necessarily to who you will be. It emphasizes that a nobody of someone is not necessarily the continuation of that someone. It can be. In my opinion there are at least two people who are very likely Basically, could be considered the same person as their original being. That would be Axel and Lee and Zigbar and Brake. You could consider, in my opinion, you can consider these these people, for all intents and purposes, just the one. You know, the the, the one individual. But Zalden shows that that is not always true. Uh, I can't remember his original name. Uh, hang on, it, it'll list it right here. Zalden. Zalden. Uh Dilan, I believe. Yep, there it is. Dilan. Uh, was listed as someone who was, nevertheless, well. He wasn't exactly a great guy. He was someone who I forget. I know I'm kind of mentioning things, but whatever. Just bear with me. He was someone who was, uh, you know, a decent person who had a degree of honor to him. You know, blah 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 blah. It, we get very very brief glimpses, but what we see of Zaldin is someone who is much much more callous. Someone who is much more uh, manipulative. He is not, you know, he's not the nobody like Syax is quite the contrary. He has quite a bit of a personality to him. But he carries himself with an almost a unbearable level of arrogance, because he views his current state of being as what he wants to be. We hear that and see that throughout Zaldin's actions throughout this game. He actually wants to stay at nobody. He thinks that having a heart is a weakness. He thinks that having a heart is a flaw, and something that he does not want to engage in. And he looks down upon those who either want their hearts back, like his fellows, or still have them, like the like his victims. We also see in him someone who has a great deal of cruelty within him, and when he sees Beast, for example, who also receives a degree of uh, characterization within, he grows more and more fascinated with manipulating and utilizing Beast's heart and Beast, the individual, towards his own ends, using Beast's pain and fear and doubt and guilt just to further his own ends. That's where Zaldin was at, and while this says a great deal about Zaldin himself, as I said, it speaks more to the nature of what a nobody really is. That a nobody can or cannot be the same as their original being, as I said, but more importantly, that a nobody is fully shaped in their personality, in their aspect, in, their, in who and what they are, after they become a nobody. Even though they have all the memories of their original being, it is what they do with them that defines who they are. That's where I'm going with this. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Uh, who is the next one? Vexen! Even's nobody. Vexen... <laughs> Vexen actually doesn't receive uh, a lot of characterization in this one, and neither do Lactius and Zexion, or Marlugia or Larksin. So I'm just going to kind of breeze through these guys. But it is worth noting that every person on that list I just mentioned, all the Recom nobodies, do actually receive a bit of additional uh, expounding on their characters in this game. And they do it beautifully. One of the things I've often said... I, <laughs> I've talked so much uh, of late about bad writing. You can blame Voyager on that, because I'm going through Season 2 of Voyager. It's so nice to talk about good writing, like I just did with Grand Theft Auto 5. It's so nice to talk about when writing is used well. One of the things you can do... I know I've mentioned this before, forgive my repetition. I don't know if you've watched all my videos. Is the idea that to expound upon character A here, you can... Do the do the the bad the Jason Bourne method the bad writing method where you where you say oh he's this and he's that and he's this and he's that, and then he just stands here and you know you just kind of assume it's true, or you have him you you can show through flashbacks or you can show through uh you know more proper methods show through flashbacks show through actions show through interactions but one of the things I like best is to demonstrate who this character is by their interactions with character B over here and the way these two interact. Um shows us more about this character. 358 does that on its head. We don't learn more about Roxas. We learn more about these organization members as they interact with Roxas, when Roxas isn't a character yet, because all of these interactions occur when Roxas is still formulating his, his being, when he is still the, the brain-dead zombie thing I mentioned earlier. So Vexen is a great example of this. In him, we see someone who is, of course, arrogant, and, of course, pompous, but we do actually see that he is very sharply intelligent. He has a very logical mind. He has a very deductive mind. And he has has a a very specific type of intelligence. Forgive me for not having a word for it right now. Uh, I would place him as dumber, for example, than Zigbar if I were to put it on just a uniform scale. But ultimately, it's more accurate to say that they have different types of intelligence. Zigbar can look at something and figure out what to do with it and how to do it. Zemnis can look at something and understand what its purpose is or its value vexen looks at something and can f- and can deconstruct it that's one of the reasons vexen is the scientist one of the reasons he's the one who creates the replicants the or whatever they call them you know the replico and shion he's what he's the reason he's the one who does all the studies on the heart and and the nobodies and the uh, the keyblade for example and so much data was weaned from him and his studies and it is worth noting that Xemnas allowed Vexen to die despite that, those studies. Now there are several reasons you could say why that happened, but it is my opinion that it is because Vexen's intellect is so specialized in its usefulness that once he had accomplished these ends, there was no point in letting Vexen continue to exist because at that point he's just a drain on your resources but there's one other interesting thing i want to talk about vexen before i move on vexen has that type of arrogance where he believes he's superior to you but rather than rubbing your nose in it constantly and just moving on he'll rub your nose in it and try to better you for it it's a very specific type of arrogance and that i actually don't see that often in fiction where they're trying they they genuinely feel like it is their per, their their purpose to better you because they are better than you you know what you know what i'm talking about and I just think that's interesting that they, they bothered to add that extra little layer to Vexen. And he shows this throughout 358 and to a lesser extent in Recon, but mostly in 358. Let's go ahead and move on to Laxius. Laxius is interesting. The, uh, what do they call him, the silent giant? Uh, it's not going to mention it here. Silent Hero, that's actually his title, my bad. Now he receives, as, as appropriate of his title, the least characterization of all, but at the same time, they do a great deal with the tiny amount they show. With Lakshius, we see someone who is obviously torn and distraught over all the actions the organization has taken, even up to that point. We haven't even gotten to the really bad stuff yet. Even up to that point, Lakshius feels bad for what the organization is doing because he knows it's wrong, and he agrees to it for whatever reason. We don't know why exactly. There are probably, There's probably a story behind there, to be completely honest with you, but his is one of those tales where it's almost tantalizing because it speaks volumes without saying anything at all. And when and there's this beautiful scene where Roxas asks, is that good? And Lakshus says, well, it's good for the organization. And he looks down when he says it. It's just such a subtle thing. It's brilliant. I love it. I, I, that's really all I have to say, unfortunately. But Lakshus is a perfect example of showing without saying. You know what I mean? Uh, t- showing, not telling, in other words. Very well done, very well done. Let's talk about Zexion. Another good example of uh, someone who basically doesn't actually have a lot of uh, screen time, per se. But we also see in Zexion someone who is very driven. We see someone who is very much uh, intent upon accomplishing whatever it is that is set before him. Whatever, Whatever his ambitions may be, He demonstrates what I would call a real loyalty to the organization. Not necessarily to Xemnas himself, but to the ideal of the organization. And he very much shows how much he wants to work hard in order to accomplish that. But furthermore to that, we tell from Zexion that he has another type of arrogance. That I am superior to you because I work hard, because I'm willing to work hard, and you are not and that's the end of it. That he That's all he's going to do. And he, he actually has a line to Roxas, which, which speaks to that as well, where he says, you know, I i would say nothing about a coward who wouldn't actually compil- complete all his additional bonuses. When the- and by the way, I'd just like to say that this is a brilliant game as well, because it mixes all these scenes where we learn more about these characters with actual in-game tutorials. Brilliant way to do it. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do in-game tutorials and actually have them make sense and be, be properly done. This is a pretty good example of that, all things considered. I just felt like mentioning that here. <laughs> I also want to pause here to mention one other thing before I move on to Demix. There's an interesting thing, and we only know this because of uh, supplemental material. The uh, the gathering of nothing, or whatever, where nothing gathers, that's what it's called. Where nothing gathers it's this throne room, right? Now, the throne at the top is Xemnas's. It doesn't move. It's all the way up here. And we're talking like several dozen feet tall thrones, okay? It's actually kind of comical looking, but it actually serves a purpose. Here's the interesting part. Because all their thrones are at different heights, but it's not in order of their number. For a long time we were all debating what was the significance of this. The way it was literally translated from an interview from Nomura is that it depends on how many missions they've accomplished. And from what we've learned since then, a more uh, localized translation that would probably be it shows how your level, what your level of competence is and, put more frankly, what your level of worth is to the organization, and to Xemnas personally. And, we'll, and if you ever look at that list, it's fascinating to see where everyone's chairs sit. You know, Demix is pretty far towards the bottom, but he's not that far. Zexion is lower than him. Vexen is the lowest, by far. Way at the bottom. And then you see way at the top, you know, Zaldin, Axel, Zigbar, all the people you'd expect way up there. It's just interesting, and I just wanted to mention it in brief. So, Demix, right? Now, Demix is... Another example of someone that... How do I put this? Demix is another example of of, of what can happen to a nobody. This is going to sound weird, but one of the things I talked about uh, back in my GTA 5 video was how... And I'll talk about this more at some point. I'll probably just do a video about this concept, because I could talk forever about it. I might do a brother-sister thing again with it. The idea that... A person, fictional or real, can't be summarized by a few bullet points. If you do summarize them, you're missing out on the complexities and the layers of the character, right? Demiks could be summarized by a few bullet points. But at the same time, that's not actually giving full credence to what's going on. Allow me to elaborate. Demix is portrayed as someone who is cowardly, someone who does not like to work at all, and someone who likes to just lounge around and not do anything, right? And this is shown over and over, as obviously he's one of the surviving members uh, from the Recom events. We do see him after that, and so we see a great deal more from him than the previous characters I just mentioned. So we see him... Excuse me. I forgot Merlugian and Larxene. I was going down the list. I, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I'll get to them in a second. I've stolen on Demix. Um, We see him, uh, you know, in in so many cases, he'll basically ask Roxas to do his job for him. He'll just, he'll complain about having to do it. He loves it when he gets time off and all this stuff. And it's emphasized over and over and over to the point where you start to think, this isn't a character, this is a few bullet points. Until it actually hits you. This is another example of what can be happened when you become a nobody. Rather than actually becoming a full-fledged being, I'm sorry. A full-fledged person like Axel, or losing yourself and changing completely like Zaldin, you, or 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 completely submitting yourself to the idea of being nothing like Syax. You fixate on something. We here in real life do this to some extent or another, where we have lost some sense of either identity or personality, or or we've gone through something horrible, something tragic. And we fixate on upon a single facet of our own personality, our own being, and emphasize that as a form of stabilization to comfort ourselves or to keep ourselves sane or to keep ourselves functional. I'm sure some of you out there know what I'm talking about, and I'm sure you understand that I do as well. And so in Demix, we see someone who has made that his own character trait. He did that. He made that, his character trait, he made himself that bullet point, because he doesn't have anything else, and he is trying so hard to cling to the only thing that he feels that he has, because he has lost everything else, and he wants to keep going. I mentioned earlier my my grief over having to cessate the nobodies. The one I feel the second hardest is Demix. I feel so horrible for having to remove him from existence. When, when, he, when we fight him in Kingdom Hearts 2, it is so obvious. Everything I just mentioned, it is, and it becomes even more obvious in hindsight. When he is talking to him, he's like, don't be, don't be afraid, you know, don't worry, it's all good, you don't have to be mad, we have heart. And then Sora calls him out and said, you can't, If he's just a dick about it, if, if I'll be blunt, you know, you can't call it, you can't fool me, you're nobody's, you don't even have anything, you know. And then Demix gets angry. Demix turns around, glares at him and says, silence, traitor. Because Demix is so Upset about the about that possibility, about losing all that he is, and he's been trying so hard for the last year plus or however long he's been around, in order to to cling to existence, to life, that this brash upstart would dare to come out and just start spitting at him and say, "Oh yeah, you don't really exist." Of course, Demik's got pissed. And that's when Demix actually showed that despite all his previous indications of cowardice and not wanting to work, that he actually had that competence. That's one of the reasons why Demix is, is not one of the lowest on the things, because he actually can be and do things if he actually tries to. He just has to have the motivation to. And in 358, we see most of the times that motivation is just fear, because Xemnas can, you know, denaturize him into a, into a dusk. But Sora gives him the first real inspiration, the first real reason to do anything he's had in his whole existence. Rage. I love that scene. And it's one of the reasons I feel so bad when he finally dies, because, you know, his final line sounds a bit cartoonish almost when he says it. No way! is is his last line. No way. But think about that for a moment. And think about why he says that. And think about why he is so agonized over the fact that he is now actually going to cease existing. Let's move on to Marlugia. Now, I'm going to just say this flat out. Marlugia is the creepiest bastard in all of the organization. We saw this in Recom a lot, but Marlugia is terrifying in his own way. In Zemnis we see the competent, capable villain. In Ansem the Seeker of Darkness, we see the archetypal classic, you know, bombastic villain. In uh in, in, I'm not gonna name any other examples, because I could, but eh. in um in Marlugia, what we saw was a completely different uh type of villain. We see someone who is terrifying. It is no surprise that his actual uh well he has power of flowers it is more accurate to say that he has power over death. <laughs> Everything about him says this his, his, his assassin, scythe, or I'm sorry, his scythe, and, his, uh, and you know, his title as the graceful assassin, and he, the, his uh, special abilities when you fight him in Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix, you know, all that stuff just speaks to his power over death. He is the terror type of villain. And I mentioned that in in Kingdom Hearts uh, Recom, but it is especially... It is, is re-emphasized here in 358 because even with the few interactions you have with him, you, you see so clearly how he is just someone who is... Just sends a few chills down your spine every time you're near him. And even Roxas, who at this point, you know, again, is basically in zombie mode, reacts to this guy which just speaks to the volumes of how chilling he is. That's all I've got. I just wanted to mention that. And then we have Larxine. Larxene actually... uh only has, like, two, I believe, real appearances, and uh, I don't really have much to add to Lark's Scene. Most of what we see here is furthering of her personality and, and mindset, but we do see... Uh, one thing we do learn very clearly is the fact that she and Merluzia were already planning their coup before they went to Castle Oblivion, and in fact, it's very likely that they were sent to Castle Oblivion Because Xemnas knew about that coup, so he could get rid of them quietly while still furthering his other goals, a.k.a. the creation of Shion and the finding of the room, which I'm actually not going to talk too much about here, uh, because its relevance is more pertinent to Birth by Sleep. But it is worth noting that even in this game, references are made no less than six times, I believe at least, to finding that room in Castle Oblivion. That's all I'm going to say about that. I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. That's also why he assigned Axel to that, one of his most competent people. Just saying. But one of the things we do see about larkseen is twofold. One, that she is still very vain. <laughs> and two, that she... <sighs> I guess I want to use the word impertinent. She's very impertinent. She... Even at this point in time, even when she is assigned on a mission with you, she is the only one of the members, some of them growls about having to deal with you, but she's the only one who flat-out refuses to follow orders in several cases. Flat-out declines to do so. Not only does that speak to her uh, general lack of of respect or uh, trust for the chain of command, or Xemnas himself, but also says something about her character, because it shows how unafraid she is. And the other thing I want to add to that is, speaking of her death scene, because, I mean, we've kind of made a trend of that already here, I didn't really mean to, her cessation is also kind of poignant in its own way. Because unlike so many of the other members, the way she reacts to it is not only with fear, which is expected, but with disbelief that she is truly cessating, that she cannot; that things cannot end this way. It's one of those horrible things that I don't even know how to describe properly, where someone doesn't understand the true gravitas of what they have been doing to others, and then it is done to them, and and what they feel is all the more amplified by that understanding. And you see that in her voice, and, or <laughs> see that in her face, and hear that in her voice in Recom, when she cessates, when, when she ceases to be, because... Whew. Anyways, now let's well, let's go back up. Who's left? I think I only have one left, Mara Luxord, at this point. Yes, that's right, one left, and then I'm going to stop the video and totally not talk about more. Sorry, I'm just messing with you. Robin Atkin Downs does the voice for Luxord. I don't know if you guys knew that. I I just mentioned that because he's one of those uh, more prolific voice actors. they got quite a few uh, good voice actors for this series. It's a shame Luxord didn't have any lines. And indeed, that's actually the biggest thing I have to say about Luxord in a nutshell. It is a pity that Luxord does not have more lines, does not have more scenes, because he is a fascinating character in his own right. He is, again, uh, very similar to Demik's. He has fixated upon something, his gambling, his his chance, and in so doing, tried to make that what his personality is as he clings to it. You know, again, very, very good, very similar example of that. He also goes out of his way to speak in rhetoric and to... He's not quite fancy in his wordplay, but he does speak in a slightly different tonality and style. This is actually more obvious in Japanese because they actually have different uh, speech... Uh, Styles, for lack of a better term and, and terminology and whatnot, that they use in order to denote, it. you know, I am speaking in an old man manner. I am speaking in the manner of a young girl, you know, etc. It's a little more obvious there how Luxord speaks, but even in English they do manage it. That. And that's one of the reasons they got Robin Atkin Downs to do his English character is so that he could speak with that sort of half British accent to just kind of just kind of get that point across just a little bit. Nice, nice touch, I might add. No, he. How do I put this? How do I put this? I'm trying to think about how to put this. Uh, forgive me just a moment. <sighs> Luxford portrays an interesting example of someone who... ...doesn't care. I mean, we sort of see this in Demix, but I didn't want to mention it there because that wasn't the relevant part of his character. In Luxord, it's pretty much the only real thing we know about him. It is such a, tra- it's such a tragedy. What we see in Luxord is the closest thing to an everyday Joe. Nobody. He is someone who is just doing his job, who is just going through the flow. Walk, showing up at work today, stamping the papers, signing the paperwork, going home, having dinner, going to bed. You know, he has this routine thing going on, and it's interesting in its own right to see someone like that in an organization like this, especially given the variety of everyone else. It's almost necessary when you think about it. But the reason I say it's a shame we didn't see more of that is because Luxert himself represents not resignation like in Grand Theft Auto V, but rather comfort is the word I want to use. There is a degree of comfort that he has in his everyday thing. He is not a bad person. And in fact, he is one of the people who, is, who looks like he is the most injured by the, what he perceives to be the betrayal of Roxas against him. Because he and Roxas got along pretty well, actually. And he does not understand why Roxas would turn on him like this. Because, And it's not like the big thing, and we were the closest of friends. They were just co-workers, right? But at the same time, if one of your co-workers just randomly decided to betray you, you'd probably be upset by that. What I'm saying is, he's an interesting middle ground. It's almost vanilla, but it's fascinating to have at least a little bit of vanilla in your story, especially if it's portrayed right. And I would have liked to see more of Luxord. And oh well, I suppose. Well, that's it. No one else to talk about. We're just going to move on. Nothing else. Anyone buying this? No? Okay. Before I move on to the biggie, the finale, there's one thing I want to talk about. Water. Water is great, and you should drink it. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. (sighs) One of the complaints I've heard about this game is that it drags in the middle. And that there's a plane flying by right now. God, I can hear that even with both headphones on. Is it gone? Okay. Is that it drags a bit in the middle. The beginning chunk of the game over here is solid, compact, and just crams... Development, character development, story, plot, it's awesome! The last chunk of the game is the exact same thing. It's just event, 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 impact, 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 and then culminating in the ultimate tragedy. This chunk of the game is almost routine. And as weird as this is going to sound, I actually praise the game for this. This is another example of gameplay and story integration. I'm just going to jump right into this to explain what I mean. It is one thing to say that a character has lost their life. It is another thing to explain what that life was before, so that we have an understanding of what was lost, so we have, you know, we understand the value of what was lost, and we can feel the impact of that loss more. It is a third thing, and a very difficult thing to pull off properly, to have us play through that life, so that we understand personally what was lost. My point I'm getting to here is everything I talked about Roxas earlier about just wanting to live his everyday life. He had that for a large time. He went out, he did missions. He wasn't doing anything horribly bad. Eliminate these heartless. Scout out this area. Talk with these people. You know, he would do his missions, he'd come home, he'd have his ice cream with his friends and chat, and he'd go to bed. It was his routine, but more importantly, it was his life. And it was the closest thing to the kind of life he wanted I have to praise that at the same time as acknowledge that it's going to be a problem for people playing this game because it is a routine. As you're playing it, it is a routine. And then when you get towards the end, when things start to go wonky, all of that is completely destroyed. Not just for the Roxas, not just for Roxas, but for the player as well. And it adds to the value of that loss, at least in my opinion, and that's one of the reasons I like the way they did that. That's all I wanted to say about that. Let's talk about Shion. I mentioned I was going to do this video a little bit differently, and that's because of right now. As of now, all bets are off. I am going to be talking about the series as a whole, with absolute spoilers for games even after this point. So this, for anybody who has played up to 358 but hasn't played future games and doesn't want them spoiled, now would be a good time to go ahead and pause or shut down the video and comment about how much you hate me and hit that punch arching guy in the stomach button again. I've already gotten a couple punches. You know, it's okay. My stomach's tough. Ooh, oh, there's another one. Okay. I think that's a good enough warning. Let's talk about Xehanort. I've talked about this concept before in brief. The idea of a complete monster is something that I actually have a pretty strict definition of, far more strict than they have in TV tropes. For me, someone who is a complete monster is someone who is the furthest extent of evil. Someone who is absolutely just the worst possible individual they could be. Nothing redeeming, nothing beneficial, in character and out. For example, David Weston in, Get in Grand Theft Auto Five, complete monster. Kefka, not a complete monster. Sephiroth, not a complete monster. Death, not a complete monster. So forth, so on. You, you follow where I'm going with this? Um, Cutler Beckett in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, complete monster. Uh, Davy Jones, not a complete monster. I, I'm just giving you examples so you understand where I'm going with this. The reason I mention this here, and with relation to Xehanort, the original Xehanort, by the way, is because it is my opinion that he is one of the better examples of complete monster I've seen, and the reason why is the very nature of Kingdom Hearts itself. Most of the time when you see a complete monster, Voldemort's another good example, by the way, you see someone who is grand. A grand villain, you know, in a grand fantasy. And, and Kingdom Hearts is, is definitely a grand fantasy. But so much of it boils it down to the individual levels. No game more than this one. So, while yes, this is someone who is ruining lives and destroying worlds and whatnot, what we are seeing here is the individual lives being destroyed. Rather than watching a planet get blown up and trying to um, wrap our minds around that, we see two or three survivors of that planet. And we understand more personally and more strongly that loss. Xehanort is a complete monster for his actions and for his interactions. No offense to Leonard Nimoy, in fact, quite the contrary. I think Leonard Nimoy is the perfect voice actor for the job, and I really, 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 really hope he continues to do it in Kingdom Hearts 3, or else I'm going to be very upset, because he is Xehanort's voice, in my opinion. I, I feel that very strongly. He is perfect for Xehanort. Moving on but we see in him this complete monster because he has just not just destroyed worlds but he has destroyed lives so much of the ruination and the destruction and the pain and the loss and the suffering that goes down to all of Kingdom Hearts can all be tied back to him and I'm not even talking in a technically way I mean, you could pretty much drop jump one or maybe two points back to Xehanort in all cases and nowhere is that more emphasized here than in 358 Let's look at Shion for a moment. Shion is a backup of a backup of a plan that is actually the secondary plan and not the primary one. I mentioned that change specifically to get across the point that her existence was brought into being, and her life was ruined, and Roxas' life was ruined, and Axel's lives were ruined for a backup of a backup of the secondary plan. That's how little their existence is meant to him, to Xehanort. That's how little anyone's existence means to him. He has, in his whole of his reality, done one sympathetic thing ever, in Birth by Sleep, when he took Ventus to, uh, to the world, uh, to, to uh, his home. Whose name I can't think of. All of a sudden, it's also Sora's home, Enrico's and Kyrie's and uh, Destiny Islands. That's it. When he take that's the only sympathetic he does in the entire series. And even doing that, he did that after he destroyed Ventus's art. You don't quite get points for that, you know. By the way, Zykon. Oh uh, well, no, that's not Zykon. Sorry, bad example. Whatever. Let's just move on. Um, Zykon is not a complete monster. in In the in the book, a Start of Darkness. If you just took that by itself, I could see that argument. But moving on. Why is this relevant to Shion? Well, of course it's relevant to But the point I'm trying to make here is that everything that Zemnus did within regard to 358 was all part of his own plans to make Kingdom Hearts, and I have no doubt whatsoever that Zemnus was making on his own plans, in addition to advancing the plans of Xehanort to make the 13 vessels, but at the same time was doing so purely because he wanted to, to obtain his own power, possibly to create his own, uh, future, his own being, his own existence, regardless of Xehanort's plans. Debatable. It's also worth noting that because Xemnas is in fact, uh, another compilation being like Roxas and Rosora are, that it is possible that Terra's influence was influencing him, as well as whatever fragments of Xehanort wanted him, so shrug. That can be debated. I'll get to that more later. I don't want to get too off-topic here. What I really want to talk about is Shion. I have heard people, and if you're watching this video, you know who you are, <laughs> people who have argued rather strongly and stringently that Shion does not deserve to be viewed as a person. That it is no different than viewing Shion as you would view a toaster, or a pillow, or a glass. There's just nothing there. It's a tool, it's something you use. Now, obviously, I disagree with that. Partially, I disagree with the presentation. I disagree with that because of the presentation. But I also disagree with that because of what I had at the time were theories as to Shion's existence. That even though she was a replicant, she still, through her connections to Roxas and to Axel, formed her own being. And based on what we have learned in the Dream Drop Distance, it is almost assured that she did begin to grow her own heart, just like so many of the nobodies did. That being said, I have so much sympathy and empathy for Shion. She is, without question, the single most tragic character in the entire series. This is... Uh, I, I mentioned before, I, w- I wanted you to really think about Namine from her perspective, okay? And I know some of the actions that Shion takes probably don't make a lot of sense, especially if you don't do all the optional stuff and get all the letters. Let's try to look at this from Shion's perspective, okay? Let's try to look at the fact that you have been brought into existence as a replicant of data... You actually aren't a replicant of a person, you you effectively were supposed to be a replicant of Sora, but because Sora himself was incomplete, and because of all the mess with regards to his heart, Ventus's heart, Roxas's heart, it just it just became this sort of nebulous thing. Let's also talk about her name really briefly. For those of you who are not aware of it, uh, her name is an anagram of number I, that is to say, imaginary number. It's, it's a mathematical concept. Um... I can't even begin to express how appropriate that is of a name for her, because Shion truly is a nobody of nothing, of an echo. (laughs) Or, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. A nobody of an echo of nothing. She is a copy made off of connecting points of data that was then... You get where I'm going with this. God, I don't even know how to express this properly. Now she's not a real nobody, in the sense that she has lost her heart, even though she kinda lacks a heart. But let's just let's just not even go into it. Um Put simply You are created, right? You have this mentality. You have you know, you, you are I'm sorry, I'm forgive me, I'm trying to narrow my thoughts down here. You're created. You have virtually no sense of self-identity whatsoever. You are given a name literally because giving you a name helps you to have a sense of identity. That's the only reason she was given a name at all, was was because, according to both Semnus and Vexen, it helps the individual to have some sense of self. So she was given a name just so she would have a sense of self, not because of anything else whatsoever. On top of that, She is then utilized by various members of the organization in training and whatnot in order to learn the ropes. And this whole time, you're just kind of not really there, and it's so difficult to even speak, let alone function. And it takes you forever to even get to the point where you can talk, where you can communicate with others, where you want to. Next thing that happens is... happens much more rapidly after your slow, gradual growth. It's like the same thing Roxas went through, only worse. And it reaches the point where finally you get to the point where you actually start to feel and care and whatnot, and individuals start interacting with you differently. You're, you're terrified of Saix, for example, but this Axel guy and this Roxas guy both have been treating you all right. Roxas, especially, has taken you under his wing because he most recently just went through what you're going through, and so he understands and sympathizes, and you feel that, and so forth and so on. And then it reaches the point where you interact with uh, Riku, and he tells you a few things, and you go off to... Castle Oblivion, and you learn for yourself who and what you really are, and that's the point at which you find out that one of your friends knew about this the whole time, and you find out that you are, you know, a clone of a copy of Blalalala, and your entire purpose in existing was to replace Roxas, the one person you care about the most. Now, forgive me for saying this, but the Kingdom Hearts series has always been very uh, absent in having romance within it. Usually the romance is understood or obvious, usually in the Disney case, you know, obviously uh, Belle and Beast have romantic feelings for each other, but that's duh, it's not, even, it's not even mentioned barely, it's just an obvious aspect of the game. I mention this because when you do that on purpose, this is the kind of thing I would do, admittedly, you, you create an absence so that when you have a presence, that presence means more because it is so unique, because it's such an uncommon thing. And what we see between Roxas and Shion is romance, in my opinion. But I'm not talking about Slashfic or, you know, whatever. It, it, that's not the relevant part. This is not sexual. This is not even intimate. This is to children who have affection for each other. It's There's almost a warm innocence to it, which makes it all the more tragic, given what happens to both of them, and emphasizes further that point I just made, because these aren't just great friends. These are people who care about each other, who feel for each other. And Shion is then made aware of the fact that she was created to replace him. And that the intent is for only one of them to survive as situation engineered so that the only way that that, that would be forward is for one of them to to, continue existing and the other one would, without question, be erased. It doesn't matter which one. The organization didn't care. Xemnas didn't care. Xehanort didn't care try to picture for just a moment what it would feel like to not feel and then to slowly learn how to feel again like a stroke victim, relearning how to function, how to move, how to breathe and then all of a sudden you have this strong connection with someone and then you learn that either you or they have to die to cease to exist utterly which is worse than death in most fictional settings Including this one. How would you feel under those circumstances? Honestly, I think Shion took it rather well, all things considered. And then she started agreeing with the idea of going to Riku, who I haven't really talked about that much, but we do see in Riku a lot of what formed his character in Kingdom Hearts 2 in this game. Why he became so sympathetic towards the nobodies, which probably is why he and Namine got along so well, and why he was the one who ended up defending her. And we see in him someone who understands what it's like to be on the other side of the coin. And I'm not just talking about the light and darkness thing. He's also the one who puts so avidly on the he puts the nail on the head, uh, in Kingdom Hearts 2 why it is they're against the organization because you're you know, people keep thinking it's this light and dark thing, it's because of your you know, why we're the victims, why are you against us? Riku's is the, saying the fact that we don't like you because you mess up our worlds is all the more impacting because he understands that there's nothing inherently wrong with the other side. There's nothing inherently wrong with being a nobody. Or heartless. Or light. Or dark. Or in between. It's what you do with it that matters. Very important character growth for Riku because of Shion. Because of his interactions with her... And how he learned about the organization and about Roxas through and with them. <sighs> I've often said that there is only, in, in most fiction, obviously, although I've actually had nightmares about this in real life, too, that there's one fate that is truly, unquestionably worse than death, and that is to be utterly forgotten. I know that's a hard thing to understand, to con- conceptualize, but I want you to truly picture this for just a moment, Okay. Try to picture the idea that you are forgotten utterly. You never existed. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, the people down the street, uh, the, the guys at the Walmart you go to every day. None of them remember you at all. You are erased from their minds. And history moves on as if you never existed. That is the fate that befell Shion, and I truly hope we manage to undo that. Now, that being said, it is worth noting that thanks to certain things, we are fairly certain that there are some people who at least remember Xion still exists, even if not details. But after Xion's defeat during the final battle, Roxas doesn't even recognize her. And when he finally remembers is when he she gives him the last of her being, fuses with his being. But even that can only mis- restrain her memories for a few moments. Even Riku says it best when he, he confronts Riku. He says it's hard to even remember her name now, isn't it? And Roxas is so confused because those memories are fading even as he speaks. But Shion is the reason why Kingdom Hearts 2 turned out as well as it did. She laid down her life for two reasons. One, to save Roxas. And two, to save Sora. I haven't talked about Sora that much in this game. That's because, while he is certainly a background element, he doesn't really come up in relevance until the end. I guess I can close this. I don't actually need to be looking at this at the moment. There we go. She lays down her life, willingly and intentionally, in the only way she could... So that she could fuse her essence into Roxas, and then Roxas could then be reconformed back into Sora. She does this knowing that, and while that is a horrible thing to do to Roxas, she does this because she understands how much worse it would be for him if he didn't. Because he would either be, you know, denaturized by Zemnus, or he would continue to work as one of their stoolies and puppets, making everything worse for everyone. The only way that things were going to work out is if Roxas went back to Sora. And so she begs Riku to go stop him, not just to recapture him, but because she can't stand the thought of Roxas going to face Xemnas and just being reduced to nothing. On one hand, it's incredibly tragic. I, I still tear up a little bit every time shion Every time I think about that, every time I think about Shion's end and the final battle between Roxas and Riku. By the way, again, gameplay and story integration, beautiful. We've seen that cutscene since the the hidden video at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1, uh, where Roxas and Riku fight in the world that never was. We actually get to fight that battle as Roxas fighting Riku. And holy moly... There's also something else relevant I'll get into in just a moment. But while it is, alt- on the one hand, it is very tragic, because Shion destroyed her life for nothing. A life that was brought into existence, tormented, ruined, and then destroyed for nothing. And at the other hand of this thing, on the other side of things, we have to acknowledge the fact That if she hadn't done that, Sora wouldn't have been reconvened when he was. And if she hadn't done that, Roxas wouldn't have been able to help Sora. And if she hadn't done that, Riku probably wouldn't have been there to function as he did and save Naminé. Without which, everything would have been a lot worse. And you you get where I'm going with this. She set into motion a series of dominoes with her death. With her cessation. With her erasure. And in so doing, ensured that Kingdom Hearts 2 would be able to end in a positive manner that things would go as well as they did. And without that, it would have all been horrible. I think it is most telling how much Roxas and Shion suffered in 358, in Dream Drop Distance, during the scene where Roxas takes Sora and shares all of his memories and all of his knowledge with Sora. And for the first time, Sora finally understands everything, and knows and learns everything that Roxas had learned, and understands all the horrible incidents that happened, and Sora cracks. It's the one and only time Sora has ever truly given into darkness in the entire series. That's telling. To me. Now... Pax just mentioned me saying I talk too much. (laughs) I probably do. Hopefully you guys at least enjoy listening to me as I talk about these things. But... What really puts the nail on the head... And brings this theme back together... Is the very end of 358 when they put Roxas in the simulation... And he wakes up with, with altered memories... Thinking the last 358 days... Was a dream that he, that occurred over the next two. Hence the title, by the way. And. <laughs> hang on, I gotta look something up really quick. This will not take me long. Uh, give me just a moment here. Ah, I'm actually tearing up just thinking about it. <sighs> give me a moment. There it is. Earlier in the thing, uh damn it, Pax. Earlier in the game, um, Roxas asks Axel what a summer vacation is because they're approaching summer, and Axel says it's a dream come true. That's what. It's a whole month off, and Roxas says a month. How do they hang on to their sanity? I can't even figure out how to fill a day. And he thinks about it. And says, eh, "I could deal with a week, maybe." And then we end up, you know, at the events at the beginning of Kingdom Hearts 2, where he now is at the final week of his summer vacation. And that just just makes that moment when Roxas is is willing to supplement his existence into Sora even more painful, when his last lines, his final words, even though he kept talking after that, but bear with me, are, I guess my summer vacation is over. I guess my concluding point here, now that I'm into super-spoiler area, is that I am very hopeful that somehow, and honestly I'm not even sure how it would be possible, but somehow we have a happy ending at the end of all this misery. I mentioned before that the Kingdom Hearts series is a a downer series. It's a tragedy. This is a tragic storyline. The problem with tragic storylines is they usually end tragically, too. And while it is possible that Sora and Riku and Kairi might have a happy ending, maybe, it is very likely that Shion and Roxas and Namine and Lee and Issa are not. I guess that's all I have to say on this one. I I do forgive. I hope you forgive my indulgence in talking about this however long I have. But uh, I'm going to go rest my throat and get ready for streaming tonight. So, I will see you guys on the flip side.